0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you want to get messages to me or get um, questions to me, that is the email address to use. It is linked below. Uh, I can't be sure that I will check the comments section to get your questions. Sometimes I do, but it's no guarantee. All right, so, man, there's a lot happening right now. It's a little nuts. I sit here recording this right now uh, on Saturday um, late afternoon. This will be posting uh, tomorrow. We have a curfew here in Denver of 8 p.m. right now because of protests and damage that's being done. Apparently, the downtown Denver area is quite a mess. We're not going anywhere near it. We live, fortunately, many miles away from that. And um, I do not predict or see that that violence is going to spread down to this area or or around the city. I think it will die off before it becomes more of a problem. And if I'm wrong, well, then I think we're all going to have quite a few more problems in the immediate future. But I I don't think that's where things are going. Um, however, there are definite red flags and markers all over the place of, of issues and agendas and problems. And what I want to stress right now, my only real message here right now is that the, the um, case for hidden agitators provoking uh, violence, provoking damage, provoking uh, more problems with all of this, more conflict with this, it seems that there is evidence uh, that's, that such hidden agitators or if you want to use other terminology for them like agent provocateur or something, you can do that. But um, for levels of conflict like this, um, generally speaking, th- those things are always present and we already see re- you know red flags and markers of that. I would ask everybody who's listening or watching me to please keep an open mind about what is going on, because um, there are an awful lot of assumptions being made by all parties concerned on all sides of this whole thing as to what's going on. We know what happened. We don't necessarily know all the reasons why it happened. And I don't say that because I'm trying to be defensive of anybody or that I'm pushing any agenda at all except purely critical thinking. The facts that we have are few. The opinions and ideas and assumptions are legion. So I'm not going to sit here and make an argument one way or the other because I know from already having done deep, deep dives on this kind of violence and this kind of social response to the violence from the past, and I've done podcasts about this, uh, so you can go back in in my library and check those out, that it takes weeks, months before all the facts are out, all the investigations are done. And if you out there are absolutely positive that there can only be one interpretation and it's yours and no one else can possibly be right about this, you are already lost because no one should ever be in that headspace pretty much about anything. And when tensions run high and emotions run crazy high right now, critical thinking and rational thought just fly out the window. They do. It's just a fact. It's a biological fact. It's not even something I'm making up. You know, it's different parts of your brain, you know, and if you guys are wondering why I'm talking to a neuroscience, not scientist on my channel and doing podcasts and videos with him, it's too get this across so that it's not just coming from me as though, you know, I know something about it. It's coming from actual people who know this stuff, right? That's why I have professionals on my channel. So I learn from them. I pass that information on to you. I I have them speak directly to you for exactly that reason. And in this case, I absolutely do know what I'm talking about. And um, and I know many of you get what I'm saying. You agree with this. You get it. You're, you're on the same page. I think most of you are. But, you know, it, like I said, tensions are running real high right now. Emotions are running real high. And when that's the case, it is impossible to try to bring reason and um, objective, you know, thought and logic and all of that into that mix. They're just nobody's ready for it. Nobody wants to hear it. It's just kind of a, more of a emotional thing. We'll just put it that way. Um, I feel horribly uh, just to say this out loud about what happened in Minnesota. I used to live in Minnesota. I'm familiar with that area. And it saddened me enormously. It was tragic and very, very, you know, uh, what's the word? Well, made me very angry, you know, watching what's going on, why it happened in the first place. Um, I've got some fairly strong opinions about a few things, but I'm not even going to bother getting into them right now as far as solutions to you know, these problems. Like I said, now's not really the time for me to be bringing any of that in because I am not going to assume anything about this until more facts come in. So right now, my ideas are just ideas that are half-baked in my head, and I've forwarded a couple of them and... You know, already had the name calling and the "you don't know what you're talking about," "you're not qualified to talk about this," "you should stay in your lane." I've already had all that thrown at me, and I'm not interested in any more of it. So, all I'm going to say right now, for my, you know, position as a self-proclaimed critical thinker, is let's not any of us rush to any judgment at all about what's going on or why it's going on exactly, more specifically that part, until we've got more facts in, okay? Um, you know, maybe that's acceptable uh, advice, and maybe it's not, but it's, it's literally, I think, the best things, the best words I know how to say right now about this conflict. I truly hope that these Protests and, um, which I'm all about. Peaceful protesting is fine with me. The violence, the looting, that kind of stuff, I, th- that's nuts. There's no reason for it. Um, and it, and it appears, like I said, that there is agitation happening. But like I said, that's, that's just a suspicion. Um, I just hope that. Knowing what I do know about authoritarianism and extremism and narcissism and our man, Donald Trump, and the way the words that he is using to respond to what is happening are far more um, disturbing to me than even the protests or the violence or the incident that sparked all of this in the first place in Minnesota. Um, And, of course, the little more, you know, That dog incident in New York. Um, Like I said, there's a lot of assumptions flying around right now, and we need all the facts to come out. Um, But anyway, I'm more concerned about the potential authoritarian response to all of this. Uh, The National Guard has already been called out in a few places if the, you know, main body of the military is somehow gotten involved in this through some kind of chicanery or shenanigans Um, because I know there are laws against, you know, military operating on American soil and all that. But, you know, if there's anything we've learned over the last four years, it's that precedent is kind of out the window with this president. And uh, he was actually voted in by people who wanted that, who wanted precedent to fly out the window for him to shake things up and drain the swamp and all that. Well, we certainly got a lot of shakeup, but I don't think we've seen any swamp draining, and I certainly don't think we've seen any... Um, bright future offered to us through the quote-unquote leadership of uh, our federal government right now. And that's beyond disappointing, and now we've got what we've got. And if it continues like this, I'm I'm very afraid that, according to the historical playbook that rolls out time and time and time again, that authoritarian measures will be authorized. And it is a little scary— when you're dealing with personalities like Donald Trump's, uh, that when you give them that kind of power and authority, getting it back from them is often very difficult, if not impossible. Uh, I know those are really dark words. And, you know, given everything that's been going on this year, I think a lot of our heads are in a pretty dark place. I, uh, I wish it wasn't that way. You know, and like I said, um, I, it doesn't have to go that way at all. Uh, I could be just, you know, fearing the worst when there's no chance of, you know, anything like that happening. And if so, I will be the first to breathe the biggest sigh of relief and freely be happy to admit that my fears were wrong or did not play out the way they did. But I know for a fact that my fears are not unfounded. All right, let's see what happens. (laughs) And in the meantime, um, let's answer some of your questions. And (laughs) let's see where we can go with this to maybe brighten some people's days instead of darken them. Robert Scott. During your last Colin show, there was a lot of good talk about finding ways to constructively express oneself in a time of isolation and uncertainty. I recently needed to express a sadness over the loss of life to COVID-19, so I turned the feeling into music. I think sadness is the right response to what's happening sometimes, especially if it spurs one to do something, to create. Do you feel that our culture stigmatizes sadness? Thanks for the question, Robert. And I, I would say that if I had to answer this with a strictly yes or no, that I would say yes. But there's more words to be said here. So let me qualify all of that by saying, first off, the American culture is actually a disparate collection of many different cultures that have a very hard time getting along with one another and yet somehow have made it work. And, uh, and somehow we've grown this country and, and created, you know, this thing. but we still have, I don't know, six, seven, you know, nine different cultures, different little, you know, fiefdoms of, of of cultural centers throughout the United States, the geographic United States, and so each of these different areas sort of responds differently, has different, way different values and ideals and morals and that kind of thing than than the other ones do. So you'll get more of an acceptance, for example, on the West Coast to victimhood, uh, tragic circumstances, sadness. Um, You'll get more sympathy for that kind of thing than you would, say, in, you know, uh, well, the South, where it's more of a, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, pray to God and all will be well and there's a plan and, you know, don't be, you know, too broken up about everything because it's all going to end up all right. And I'm talking in broad generalities already, even though I'm trying to break this down into, you know, slightly more nuanced bits and pieces here, (laughs) you know, it's, you're always going to offend somebody when you start, you know, uh, personalizing or, or what's the word, um, uh, talking about the characteristics of different areas, you know what I mean? Because you're going to run into people in those areas who are like, well, that's not how it is here. Uh, So I know, I get it. (laughs) Okay. But generally, so let's go up and say generally speaking in the United States, um, There's a sort of, um, you know, this American exceptionalism attitude that has pervaded the United States for for centuries, decades, uh, certainly, you know, uh, anyway, a long time. Um, And... You know, failure, giving up, being sad, being morose, being down, you know, that's frowned upon, generally speaking. People aren't, aren't interested. This is why one of the reasons why um, treating depression and anxiety and, and other difficult mental illnesses or, or personality disorders in this country is so difficult because we don't even want to recognize that it exists. We don't even want to acknowledge it. Oh, he's sad. Uh, he's just a, he's a loser. He's, uh, you know, he's just being a victim. He's just this. She's just that. You know, they just throw a thought-stopping cliche on the person, and they don't have to think about him anymore or do anything about it. So, um, you know, do we stigmatize sadness? Yeah. Yeah, I think we do. Um, At the same time, (laughs) there is also the reverse polarity, though, where we also, you know, can sometimes in some places glorify it or... You know, make it out to be some um, something better or more wonderful than it is—the glorious, you know, wonderful sadness of it all—and you see this sometimes reflected in movies and books and things. At least that's how I've seen it manifest. Uh, And I thought I'd throw that out there. But I think more—I think culturally, in real life, not entertainment, but in real life, I think we tend to um, give it give sadness give give you know that kind of uh, of band of feeling a kind of uh, you know I don't want to I don't I don't know how to deal with it I don't want to deal with it I don't want to deal with it in you I don't want to be that way because you know turn that frown upside down who wants to be a sad sue why you know don't be so downtone I mean this was pervasive through Scientology Oh, my God. I mean, there was just a complete unacceptance of it. You couldn't walk around in Scientology being sad. That was literally unacceptable. So, you know, so you can get to that level. And I know that kind of thing also exists in other religious groups. And, um, you know, and also not just religious groups, also in these, you know, power of positive thinking groups and stuff, they tend to, you know, stigmatize sadness or, or anguish or grief as well. So that's the basis for my answer on all of this. And I don't know, it was all just kind of shooting from the hip. Maybe I hope that answer is, is somewhat useful. <laughs> Michael Yoder. I finally delved into the OT3 materials with commentary. Besides the bizarre space opera crap, I stumbled over Incident 1 and Incident 2, and in that it leads to R6. They read like bad storyboards for an even worse sci-fi flick, with cherubs and trumpets, waves of light, chariots, and then terrific winds and thetans, and so on. What was the purpose of Incidents 1 and 2 in the Scientology narrative? Do they relate to auditing, or are they just an explanation of what was supposed to have happened 75 billion years ago? And what is R6 all about? Well, Michael, you've asked a question that for me to actually fully, fully answer it would, would take like, I mean, I, there's a lot of material on this. But let me, let me bring it down to the simplicity for, for Scientology here, because it's all just kind of fun and games anyway. When it comes to Scientology's mythology, it really does read like a bad sci-fi flick. And trying over the years that I was in Scientology to put it all together into a coherent narrative – was well it was impossible because i didn't even have access to the ot levels when i was in scientology but i had access full access to all the lower level stuff and there's a lot of really wild crazy sci-fi stuff in the lower levels that you can all by itself through history of man through a lot of bulletins and lectures Hubbard gave or wrote where he talked about past track incidents is how he referred to them or whole track incidents, the things that happened way, way in the past prior to this lifetime. That's the whole track. Your whole track goes back all the way to as far as you have existence. You know, that's that's all the memories there. Uh, the time track is your current life. Your whole track is all of it. So Hubbard talked about incidents on the whole track. There's even lectures called principal incidents on the whole track and things like that. None of that's confidential. And Scientologists eat that stuff up. I was so hungry for it. And, um, and yet continually felt like I was running into obstacles because I knew that there was this confidential information. So you get a sort of hodgepodge mix. When you throw the OT levels on top of the other stuff that Hubbard wrote or put together, you get this sort of snapshot of here, and then a snapshot of here, and then a snapshot of here. It's like it's not a a, a continuing narrative. It's more of a collection of musings and ideas and 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 factoids that hubbard would throw out during his lectures he never really sat down and said okay kids it's story time here's where we all came from and here's what happened next and then here's what happened and then here's what happened None of that, that doesn't exist anywhere in Scientology, which is why putting it all together, I always go on about this because it's just, you know, you got to piece this and then this. And sometimes he's talking about stuff and he doesn't give precise dates. I mean, when he's talking about incidents that are 68 trillion trillion years ago. That's an awful lot of years ago, but he's still only bringing it down to a a, a band of a trillion years. It's sixty-eight trillion trillion years ago. Okay, well, how many billions of years? How many, you know, millions of years? How many hundreds of that? Like you're trying to bring this down to an incident, which you can then compare to the date of another incident, another one. You see what I mean? It's just it's it's all over the place. It's just it's a, it's it's confusing as hell. Okay, so given all that background, I set all this up so that I could tell you that it's it's very difficult for me to tell you exactly what the significance of these incidents are, except that the the incident one is basically the earliest. Uh, well, it's not actually the earliest incident, but it's it's. Because four quadrillion years ago, when Hubbard said incident one happened, which is him saying is the entry into the into the messed universe of the physical universe, this this place we all live. Well, if that's true, it actually contradicts, you see, the earlier data just a couple years before, 1964, 63 time period. He's laying out incidents that were supposedly quadrillions of, you know, trillions upon trillions of years ago, um, billions and billions of years ago, trillions and trillions of years ago. So what are you supposed to think about all that, right? It just doesn't, you, you can't make it work. So we we hone in on the OT3 narrative because it's, you know, confidential, and it's supposed to be very explanatory, the most directly explanatory um, narrative of why Earth exists the way that it does now. Uh, The earlier stuff, you know, there's hints of invasion forces, you know, aliens coming to Earth and invading it, and there's... Aliens fighting aliens on Mars and Venus and here, and there's, uh, you know, a Galactic Confederation and Council, and there's the Markab and all that stuff. But so the incident one sort of being the later incident on the uh, the discovery process, Hubbard would say, right, being the most recent discovery, uh, sort of invalidates some of that earlier stuff and tells you, okay, we said all that before, but actually four quadrillion years ago. There it is. That's when we all came into and entered the physical universe with cherubs and horns blowing and all that stuff you're referring to. So so in a way, maybe that incident one sort of relegates all the rest of the earlier stuff that contradicts it at least onto the trash heap or forces you to think, well, he must have gotten the dates wrong. And maybe when he said that the gorilla implants, which were supposed to have happened, you know, 75 billion billion years ago, well, maybe actually that was only, you know, uh, 77 billion years ago, like that happened right before incident two, which is the Xenu genocide. And that is the 75 billion years ago incident. So, you know, it really, at the end of the day, it's anyone's guess how all this stuff is supposed to go together. Uh, Because, like I said, Hubbard never really clarified all of this as one coherent whole piece. And there you go. Oh, oh, yes. Okay. And then the R6 bank you asked about. So the R6, or the R6, you said, what is R6 all about? R6 stands for routine six it was the final set of processes that Hubbard developed in order to tackle the reactive mind and take it apart. There had been uh, a routine one, a two, a three, a four, you know, up through six. Six uh, had to do with directly dealing with and taking out the reactive mind. And um, and he had, this was all developed at St. Hill in the early to mid-1960s. And um, so, routine uh six is the set of processes that you would use to basically go clear and that gets you onto the onto the doorstep into the into the door uh, so you can get onto the ot levels which hubbard developed after that so when he ever refers to r6 or the r6 bank it's just different terminology for the reactive mind, which you know goes all the way back to Dianetics. And Hubbard had later revisions and ideas about what constituted the reactive mind and how you would tackle it. But the goal was still straight out of Dianetics, get clear by getting rid of the reactive mind. And then what he said later is that that opens the door to your OT case, the body fate and stuff, and the Xenu and all the other stuff. And that's why you need to get onto and through the OT levels as rapidly as possible. So there you go. Cyprian Ivanov. I sometimes wonder if one reason a lot of people seem to find cult leaders charismatic is that they're able to put words to a feeling the potential follower has that the follower isn't articulate enough to describe on their own. The articulation of rage or fear or disgust is coupled with a confident explanation that promises to be understandable instead of the ineffable complexity of the real world. The follower feels a sense of trust that the situation is being handled. Is the issue of cults using a separate vocabulary a matter of twisting existing concepts and followers, or is it often a case of being the first introduction to many of the words that are being twisted? Okay, thanks, Cyprian. Um, it's a little combination of both. It really depends on what group you're talking about. Some groups, uh, in fact, many of them will really go the lazier route and simply... <coughs> Excuse me. And will simply uh, retool or redefine existing words that are close to or similar to the concepts that they want to use. Or like Hubbard did, he'll take a fairly rare word out of the English, you know, repertoire, like engram or postulate. And he'll give it a new definition for sci- that's Scientology-specific, let's say. Or, you know, in, in the case of Dianetics, you have words like engram and lock and secondary. I mean, these are, you know, these are just regular Words, but they're got they have very specialized definitions within those contexts. Easier to do that because people are already familiar with the word in some sense, and they can sort of tie the new concept to the existing concept they already have, which is why you know simple words are better. Um, even you know, the words that Hubbard was coming up with to, to retool like engram or it are not. You know, some twenty-letter-long, you know, jaw-breaking word to to have to say. Um, okay, so you get uh, you get that kind of thing happening, um, where you have new terminology being used. Uh, it serves the same function or purpose, but it generally is used. If any, if there would be any distinction between these two things, it would be because you want the person to think. That what that word represents, the new word, you know, let's call them the Hufflebuffs. You know, let's say the Hufflebuffs uh, are some, you know, I don't know, some magical entity or something that nobody's ever thought of before. And those are your spirit guides or something. But instead of calling them spirit guides, we'll call them hufflebumps, And that gives it an air of distinct specialty and uniqueness. It's only in our little, you know, humful uh ology we're in humphology here, and in humphology, the huffle are the you know, are your spirit guide. Let's say so. That's a very unique, special, individual, distinct, you know, word that that makes it that we have tapped into some kind of knowledge or or sacred truth that no one else has even come close to. So we had to make up an entirely new word for it. So it would contribute even more so to the sacred lore or sacred science of the uh, cult belief system by using, you know, completely new specialized terminology. I think, you know, simple enough to understand. Um, And that's my conjecture on it. You know, I'm pretty sure somebody like Noam Chomsky would have a lot more to say about the use of regular words that are repurposed rather than creating whole new words and what sort of other psychology might be connected with that. But that's what I, I thought of off the top of my head and from my experience with Scientology and Hubbard's own explanations as to why he was retooling certain words and inventing other ones' uh, whole cloth. So there you go. Adria vizi lube Regarding Sensibly Speaking podcast number 246, do you or Harry think being an apostate and subsequent violence could be experienced within a broad religious category such as Christianity if a person changes their denomination, changes their theology or opinion on a matter, or even acknowledges their sexual preference if it is not strictly heterosexual? I probably butchered your name again, and uh, you have to contact me so I find out how to pronounce your name, (laughs) Adria. I think I got it. Anyway, as far as your question goes, it's a great question. And yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, Honor-based violence is something that occurs across the religious spectrum. Uh, multi-denominational. It's not, you know, any. It's not specific to super specific. It can happen anywhere, almost anywhere, and especially where there is extremist thinking, where it's all or nothing kind of black and white thinking. That's really where it comes out hardest. And you'll find black and white thinking in, well, again, across all religious spectrums, um, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in uh, Islam, in Christianity. All of these things have extremist fringe elements that, you know, that will take great offense at somebody withdrawing their loyalty or allegiance or belief in that belief, in that dogmatic belief system, and they will want to do violence to that person because it's such a betrayal. Um, This is, you know, this is just cult thinking 101, right? And. So yes, it's absolutely positive across any of these spectrums that you'd see that. Um, How often the percentages of it, that's the whole point of doing these studies is to find out because we don't know how bad the situation is in any of these groups. We have some red flags and indications that it's bad, but we don't know on a broad spectrum. We don't know just how violent, you know, how, how what percentage of these extremists make up the whole group, and out of that, how much of this honor-based violence is going on. We need a lot more studies of this in order to know that. For sure, all we know for 100% sure is that it does happen, and we know a lot of the reasons why it happens. James Wahlberg, I find the RPF morbidly fascinating. My question is, exactly where is the RPF? There must be more than one building where these people are housed. How many of these facilities are there, and are they just in L.A. and Clearwater? Are they nondescript buildings, or are they identified with the Scientology logo? I assume that celebrities are treated differently when they are in the RPF than the rank and file. What kind of things do celebrities have to do in the RPF? Okay, James. Thanks for uh, asking this question here. And um, you, like others in the past, have expressed in your questions some false information, which I want to clarify first. Celebrities never do the RPF. The Rehabilitation Project Force, or RPF, is a org only activity. There have been exceptions in the distant past, back in the seventies and I think eighties. There were a few staff. Who were put on RPF-like programs, or you know, in a couple of cases, just thrown straight onto the RPF. But that was the ex- that was wildly rare and and wildly not what Hubbard said to do or how to do it, which is why it never continued. Um, the RPF is not for people who are not in the Sea Org. You have to get there. You have to be assigned to it, and it's a full time operation. So, I mean, you're giving up everything when you're on it. And, you, and you're already in the Sea Org where you've already given up all of the outside world. You're not in the outside world anymore. You're in the Sea Org. And the Sea Org is a very cloistered bubble world environment. The RPF is a bubble world within that bubble world. So no celebrity is ever going to get in there. We used to be told when I was on the RPF that there are public Scientologists who actually offered to pay to do the RPF. Now whether that was just some lone nutter or there's actually a, you know, some contingent of public scientologists who think it would be good for them to do an RPF program, I don't know. This was I literally just told you everything we were told, but that's nuts, you know, and no public were ever allowed to pay for it and do it. So, okay, so now the RPF is a disciplinary and rehabilitation program in order to get a Sea Org member's head on straight and get him back with the program after he's broken the rules or gone so far off the rails that he is what is considered in a situation of treason to the Sea Org. That's that's how bad you got to screw up. You don't just say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time, generally speaking, and end up on the RPF. You got to really mess up. Uh, or violate some very important rules for example having sex out of wedlock or having sex with a non Org member you know or any kind of weird activity like that which is you know what happened to me and that'll that'll get you on the rpf just like that um, now i think they just kick you out you know the original policy on the matter was that if you had done if you had had sexual Peccadillos, I guess I think the word is, then um, you get beached. You're just supposed to get kicked out, you know, thrown off symbolically to the closest beach off the ship. But um, they didn't do that. They put most people, me included, like I said, on the RPF. Other things that will land you there are breaking things to a marked degree, creating a huge shore flap or problem for Scientology somehow, like, for example... There was an event happening one time, the sound went out, David Miscavige's face was all across the screen, and no sound was coming out, and people in the audience were, you know, what's going on? It went on for an extended period of time, senior executives got involved, what's going on? Well, three people went to the RPF that night because of that. So that is the kind of thing that'll get you there. Um, the RPF is meant to be a program, a series of actions that you do with another person in order to rehabilitate your se- them, they rehabilitate you. It's a, it's, a, it's a twinned operation. You work with somebody else, they work with you. Their job is to get you better. Your job is to get them better. So that's the, the program in a nutshell. I could get into all the specifics of what you do, but I've already laid all that stuff out in earlier videos, and I encourage you to check all that out. Now, as far as where it's located, well, we're hearing that there is no RPF these days. I don't totally believe that, but, you know, that's what we keep being told. Um, the, I'll show you on this picture, big blue here, with that little arrow where I did the RPF. It was on the bottom two floors of the of this wing of the big blue building. That's where the RPF was located. Are they still there? I don't know. Not if there's no RPF. At Flag, I don't know where the RPF was located. I'm not familiar enough with the Clearwater base and its layout to know exactly precisely where the RPF was or is located there. But it would be somewhere in the downtown Clearwater area where they have everybody, where they have it, people birth and stuff, um, or at least that's where they might be doing their work, where they might live. See, Clearwater is a lot more is a lot more broken up and laid out. So I, I you know, I don't really know. So um, I just know that they would be bused, you know, or transported around to wherever their work sites are, and that's where they would do their work. And as far as where they do their, their rehabilitation steps, I, I don't know, someplace way away from wherever the public are and sequestered away from the rest of the crew as well. So wherever it's going to be, it's going to be someplace that's going to be special for that. And um, and just in case there is any uh, other confusion about this, the all the stories you've heard about the hole that David Miscavige set up in the double-wide trailers at the Gold Base, uh, where he kept people prisoner with bars on the windows, locked doors, security guards, etc., that is not the RPF. That was Miscavige's own invention, and that was actually... Probably the one thing in Scientology that's worse than the RPF is, was the hole. And as far as we know, that's no longer instituted the same way that it had been. But all those people who were in the hole are still, you know, if they're still in the Sea Org and they're still alive, they're still being screwed around with. So that's what I can tell you about all that. And now it is time for some more Flash Answers. Nick C., Is there anything in Scientology ideology that would make it impossible for a woman to succeed David Miscavige when he inevitably discards his body? Nope. There is not one thing that would prevent that. Scientology pretty much doesn't care about your uh, biological gender, sex, whatever. You know, they they don't care. It's uh, are you able to do the job? Are you able to follow orders? Are you effective in getting things done? That's the the criteria for advancement in the Sea Org. And as long as you're making David Miscavige happy and complying with the orders that you're getting, you're in a secure place. The only problem is that you're working for a madman, and that madman um, is very easily displeased. So it tends to be the case that women rise more easily than men in power positions. But um, there, there are still, you know, plenty of males, uh, around David Miscavige and his, you know, circle of influence. Um, but it's just a notable thing that over the years, I always noticed that it was women who rose more easily than men. TJ Feeney, what did you think of the new images of the Pattinson bat suit? I like it, but not a fan of the collar and cowl. I like the look. I think it's a young, new, like kind of raw Batman. That's, that's what I get from the pictures if I'm wrong. And this is like, you know, Batman after years. But with Pattinson playing him, I think this is a reboot and retelling of these origin stories. So I think we're going to see some, you know, unrefined Batman. And I think that's what the cape and cowl and the car, the Batmobile, you know, being like a real car with a kick-ass engine on the back of it. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do with it. Unfortunately, with everything that's happening, the production halted. So hopefully uh, things can get under control before, you know, long enough. Anyway, we'll see what happens with that. But I liked what I saw. Bill, son of Tom. Which cult has the sexiest men and women? I say Mormonism. It's funny you say Mormonism. I I can never really sexualize Mormons. I just can't do it. I don't know. Somehow the white sh- the I don't know. There's just something about that 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 kind of turns me off, I guess I could say. But as far as uh who's sexier, I don't know. Um you know, there were some pretty good-looking Scientologists. I will say that. <laughs> Okay, so that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me ramble on like this and answer your questions. I really, really appreciate your viewership. And um, I know that these are difficult times. And they might get a little more difficult before they get better. But I am positive that they are going to eventually get better. And we are going to get through these crises. And we're going to somehow navigate these turbulent waters and get to some shore of, you know, island of sanity and calmness here somehow. Uh, I don't know exactly how. I've got ideas. Everybody's got ideas. But why don't we actually get all the facts in and then we can figure out what to do about it. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.